I see communities that are like growing at crazy rates, and you want like a sustainable growth where every week, sustainable amount of people coming in, adding value, and most importantly, not making the, ex the core experience worse for the original. So yeah, I think like it's totally okay to, to limit your growth in the early days. Um, because I think that it'll help you really figure out what is your North Star. We've got a super special guest here today on the Matt Gray Show, Greg Eisenberg, the founder of Late Checkout, which is a product design agency, studio, and venture fund that designs, creates, and acquires community-based technology products. Known Greg for the better part of a decade now. Um, he's an absolute legend when it comes to all things community. Um, he is also an advisor to Reddit, TikTok, has previously sold companies to Stumble Upon, uh, which is founded by the founder of Uber as well as WeWork. Um, so, um, Greg, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, let's dive in. So, I mean, community is kind of all the rage these days as more and more people are looking to move from having an audience online to actually owning their community and having more rich one to one relationships with people. Um, I've noticed over the last month alone, um, you and your team at Late Checkout are absolute machines uh, when it comes to pumping out different experiments based on all the insights you're gleaning online and from the work you're doing with some of the best brands out there in the world. And so over the last month alone, if, and I'm sure there's more I'm missing, but you know, you've launched Dispatch, the productized, productized agency, you've launched, um, you probably need a robot, which is in your words, this kind of like super niche community at the intersection of AI and productivity. How do you think about launching these new products and how do you avoid shiny object syndrome? Before I answer that, I want to clear one thing up, which is something that I see often on online, which is people using the word community instead of audience. So there's a, and I know you know this, but you know, the difference between an audience and a community is, is a very, very different thing. So I, I see an audience like a hotel, you know, you go to a hotel, you check in, um, you know, you're not getting to know all your neighbors. If you got to know all your neighbors at, you know, every single floor and you're going, you know, up a 20 foot, 20, 20, uh, floor, you know, Hilton, and you're getting, you're knocking on doors, people would think that, you know, you might be insane, but you know, when you move into an apartment building, um, it's, you know, when I moved into this apartment building, like I got like a cake, you know, like people were welcoming me, like we're in this together. The ho the hotel is like an audience. There's value there. You come in and you come out. The apartment building is the community. You know, when I, I live in Miami and there was a hur you know, hurricane here, you know, the community that like existed during that hurricane, everyone coming together, everyone, you know, do you need anything? Can I help you? Um, that's real community. So, um, yeah, I tend to, I think that there's tons of value in audience and I think there's tons of value in community, but I also, we, we think of them as really separate experiences. So when we're building products, we always think about what is the audience, what is the community and what is the product? So using the example you gave, you know, we launched something called, um, you probably need a robot.com. Um, that's basically, you know, how do you use AI to boost productivity? Um, you know, the, the audience there, like I was the audience, you know, my, my audience, you know, so we picked me, sometimes we work with other creators, but we picked me. Um, we, we have a newsletter that people subscribe to, and that brings them into this free community where there's programming to learn about, um, how do you put AI into your workflow? So, um, how do we, you know, to answer your question, uh, how do we avoid shiny object syndrome? Um, we have like pretty regular, rigorous, um, when we start a project using, using an audience, a community and product, we have pretty rigorous guardrails around like when to kill a project and when not to kill a project. So, um, you know, we do, we do have shiny object syndrome in the sense that we, we see a lot of opportunity, but we, we know really quickly when to kill a project. Makes sense. So using the specific example of Dispatch, um, which is your sort of productized service business, helping people with unlimited design resources um, on a monthly basis. Um, how do you kind of like decide that, okay, you have this idea, 
you're going to move forward now with launching this? Like what, what sort of insights have you gleaned in out of the thousands of things you could work on? Why that? So we run a, a really profitable, like I would call it like more of a high end agency. So we partner with like the largest brands in the world to help be their innovation team and build new products, generate new revenue streams and create community based products for them. But you know, 99.9% .9 of the leads that we get for late checkout, the agency, we don't do anything with. So because it's just not a fit, you know, for, for, for that higher offering. So we started asking ourselves, what do we do with those leads? Number one. And number two, in a recessionary environment where people are trying to cut costs um, and make more money, what are the type of agency services that people are going to want? Well, they're going to want, you know, if they've, if you've just laid off your design team, or if you're no longer hiring, you're still going to need social assets to be created, decks to cre be created, icons, websites, microsites, landing pages, but you might not be willing to pay six figures for a designer in San Francisco, um, only to leave you after six months. Mm -hmm. So for whatever, for another shiny object. So what we, what we, you know, we were like, Hey, let's do an experiment for a productized agency, meaning like it's, it's like a fixed fee basically for a monthly service. We only sell one service, unlimited design. And let's see after 30 days, can we get, and we charge five K a month. Can we get three clients in the first 30 days? Second, second month is six clients. Third is nine clients. If we can't get nine clients after 90 days, even though we're generating, call it $40,000 a month, which is, you know, almost 500,000 of ARR, which is a ton of money, we will shut down that project. Um, granted, like that project is, is like the demand has been overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, so we really hit a strike a chord with it, but it's really tough to do. Like we've had to make really tough decisions uh, with other projects where it start it was generating revenue is getting buzz, but um, we had to kill it. Makes sense. You yeah, know, I love that idea of sort of, in a way, sort of selling your sawdust. Like you have all these brands reaching out to you. You're working with like the most innovative, like most badass brands out there on the late checkout side. But then there's, as you say, 99.9% .9 of these brands that you're just not able to serve prior to starting dispatch. And so now you have the ability to kind of take that excess demand of people knocking at your door, open up a new sort of productized service business and start serving those brands. And and I like the idea of out the gate, having the sort of success metrics that if it doesn't cross this hurdle in a certain time span, kind of removing the emotion from it. Cause we all know how hard it is to kill a project. Once you've started having those success metrics that, Hey, doesn't hit this despite what we think, despite whatever momentum we got to just make the hard decision to kill it out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. It's really the hardest part is being unemotional with your products. So, you know, we're human beings, we're emotional, especially if you, you know, these are our babies when we put them out in the world. So it's really difficult to, you know, and it's public too, right? Like we're using audiences to show, you know, to post these products. So it's really tough to be like, Hey, I tried this thing. Didn't work out. I'm shutting it down and, and you're letting people down. So I think that's really, really tough, but I think if you can do it, I think you end up focusing on the things that really matter. Um, and to your first point around, um, you know, using like, this is a service that now kind of has more mass appeal. Th the way I see that is it's like the Uberfication of the products that you build. So, you know, Uber started off as a black car service in San Francisco, and then they, you know, went, you know, across the U S and Canada and globally. And then they, you know, then they offered Uber X, which was like a more, um, a cheaper version, you know, no longer do you have to spend $50 on an, you know, a black car, a Lincoln town car, you're getting to spend, you know, $7 and 50 cents and you're getting a Honda Civic, but you're still getting point A to point B that opened up, you know, a huge, 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 uh, you know, opportunity for Uber because now their total addressable market isn't just, you know, bankers and suits in the financial district in San Francisco or on wall street who can afford these expensive rides, but it's your everyday person. 
And they even went further from UberX and now they're like Uber Pool, which was, you know, a product that was like, okay, essentially like the closest thing to uh, public transportation um, for uh, calling a car. So um, it's not uncommon to, you know, for people thinking about building a product, it's, there's two ways to think about building a product. Either think about what is the most luxury version of your product that you can create. How do you serve the top 0.1% or think about what is the uh, product that can build that has mass appeal? And I'll give examples. Um, On one end, you have like your, you know, the mass appeal is like your Justin, Justin Welsh, right? Or what you're doing, Matt, like you sell a product, um, you know, in the sub 200 or something dollar range and Justin sells in the sub $200 range. It's like hundred, you know, a few hundred dollars. Um, but on the high end, there's, you know, like Cody Sanchez sells her um, for boring businesses to buy a boring business. You know, might call might might cost you know four, five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars, and it just attracts a different. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying that it attracts a different buyer. But the real opportunity is to move up and down the funnel as you learn more about who you're building for. Yeah, I love that approach. In terms of, you know, the reference there of, you know, an audience relating that to a hotel where people are going in and out of versus an apartment building where there's more of a sense of community. There's a hurricane. People are supporting one another. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to move, say, an audience on Twitter, as an example, to a actual community. How do you kind of think about those key moments or specific strategies of moving a community from a platform like Twitter, but it could also be LinkedIn for some people, Instagram, maybe even YouTube to an actual community? Yeah, I think, um, firstly, I think people who take, let's say Twitter or LinkedIn followers and turn them into, let's say newsletter subscribers, like that's not a community, but what is a community Um, you know, we have a test actually for coming out. What is a community? We call it the tribe test. And so tribe T stands for togetherness. R stands for rituals. Um, I stands, um, for what does I stand for? Let's see. I'm like blanking here. I think it stands for interaction. That sounds about right. Yeah. I think it's interaction. Um, B stands for belonging and E stands for engagement. Um, sorry, I stands for identity, member identity. Nice. Um, so, you know, is there member identity? So it's thinking about, um, how can you, uh, you know, apply like the tribe essentially to an experience. So, you know, for us, let, let's just use the example of you, you probably need a robot just cause it's fresh in my head. Mm-hmm. Like we had, you know, posted on Twitter and then we converted those people to a discord where they had to put in their email address. Then the discord had core experiences. Like we actually this morning just had a Twitter space where everyone was sharing. What is the one AI tool that they, um, that helped them today. And then through that, they developed like an identity. They, you know, they get, can engage there's belonging, there's togetherness. Um, so there's all these things. So I think that, you know, if you, if you've got an audience and you're like, Hey, how can I make, how can I put this into more of a community? Think about what is a closed invite only experience that you can create, um, digitally or physically, we know a lot of us resort to digital, but, um, physical is especially now, like there's a ton of opportunity to build like IRL experiences where, and the key is the price of entrance is your email address. So you, you, you like you subsidize it by your email address and then you use the email emails as a way to further nurture them along what David Spinks calls the community commitment curve. The community commitment curve is this idea that, um, essentially you're bringing people to be more and more invested in the community. So for example, someone who is a newsletter subscriber is quote unquote less valuable than someone who wants to be a moderator of the discord or who wants to throw events. So your job as a community designer and community manager is to think about how can I create experiences and 
and product to support people through that journey. And so when you're going and you're putting, um, you probably need a robot and releasing that to your audience on Twitter, driving people to, you know, the community uh, on discord is your specific strategy there. Is it direct posting the discord to Twitter? Is it driving people from the newsletter to a type form to the discord community? Is it Twitter to type form to discord? How do you kind of look at some of those key funnels, I guess, to that community and what's sort of the entrance to get in? Like you've talked about an email, is anyone able to get in or how yeah. do you kind of like to design your community so that there's a sense of, you know, we we all have a shared sort of values and goals of this community so that, you know, you're not letting scrubs in. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you into like the, how I was thinking about this whole process. I started off by three or so weeks ago, I started off by saying, tweeting out, would anyone be interested in like a free community to talk about AI and productivity? Like that's how it started. And then I put like, I, I tweeted it. I started getting a lot of replies. Once I, I started seeing a lot of replies, I added as a second tweet, a type form. That was it. Um, got like a thousand people or something like that. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, my next step was creating the community. At first, we let in a subset of that community. Um, we had questions that we asked and based on how they answered the question and based on like some research we did about people around like, do we think that they'd be a good founding member, which is another thing to consider, who would be a good founding member to the community, we let in our founding members. Then we layered on the email newsletter. And why did we layer on the email newsletter? This is all in a matter of three weeks, by the way. So just gives to show you like how fast things can move. We're like, hey, like we want, the problem with Discord or Slack or some of these community platforms, and we've talked about this in the past, is like, it's very difficult to get people to re-engage. So the, the newsletter is just a tool for us to surface interesting conversations that are happening on the Twitter spaces, Discord, um, where we can, you know, highlight some of our members and what they're saying, um, as well as just keep people up to date with like, what the hell is going on? Um, so that they're, you know, as you know, like going into a Discord or a Slack or whatever, it's like a bit overwhelming. So if we can like synthesize, that's huge. Then... We said, you know what? We're going to let in anyone who joins. Um, so we're at the stage where, you know, our community was like, we want more people here. Um, so we started letting them in. They told, they told us, you know, we listened to them and we started letting it in. Does that mean that we won't like create like segments and sub communities that are more private going forward? Like, I think we will likely, um, because like you need to have, you, you know, in order to keep that tribe vibe, you do need to have these closed spaces, which is why we have like a private Twitter account um, where we host Twitter spaces. We have that because like we don't want everyone, you know, on it. So um, that's how I've been thinking about it. And it's very much like learn, you, you're learning in real time. Like when you're launching a community, you're learning in real time. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm seeing that among some of the most successful founders, creators that I know, whether it's you building uh, this, you know, AI community, you probably need a robot or, you know, even folks like Dickie Bush, Nicholas Cole over at uh, Ship 30 for 30 launching their ghostwriting course in a matter of like days and same thing with a chat GPT course they release. So um, yeah, that sort of rapid iteration, kind of developing that experimentation mindset versus a perfectionist mindset and just putting things out there, learning from the community and just then kind of letting the community speak. I'm curious as you're sort of building your community now and you know, you're getting a bunch of different feedback, how are you balancing you know, community feedback versus what your gut or intuition are telling you? And how are you sort of co-creating these products over time with your community? So I say that data informs doesn't dictate some people are you know they'll call themselves data driven so they'll basically look at analytics plus voice of customer meaning like what people are saying that they want and they'll just completely go after the data 
and create products, prioritize and data. Um, that's like if, you know, you had chat GPT run your product, um, just looking at data. My belief is that, um, if, if data is science, you know, the art piece is the intuition that you build as a community leader or as a product person. Um, and I think it's really important to listen to the community, but it's almost more important to synthesize what they're saying. So sometimes they say one thing, but what they really mean is another thing sometimes, you know, so I think your job as the leader needs to be synth uh, synthesis. Um, so we're very much listening to what they are saying, but we're much more synthesizing, basically. We're synthesizing, and so I would say it's like 70% synth uh, synthesis and 30% gut. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like a lot of getting that community feedback is then sort of pattern recognition and also trying to search behind the words that are being said to like, what's the root cause that's going on? You know, you may have customers that are asking you to build a faster horse and you know that eventually you need to really be building a car. And so That's it's right. kind of trying to figure out and um, have that, that judgment tune in the intuition and you're listening to people, but trying to find the deeper meaning baby behind what they're asking you for. Um, I'm seeing, you know, as there's more a rush to, for people to kind of figure out community and just a general demand out there, people trying to figure out, okay, you know, is it discord? Should I be going to school? Is Mighty Networks the move? Is it Circle? Should I be building my own? Is it WhatsApp? Is it Telegram? And I think some people, their heads start spinning with all these options. Um, and you know, I've done a lot of analysis. There's pros and cons to each of these. And inevitably with Founder OS, we went with school and I'm really pleased with the decision. But like anything, hey, there's always trade-offs. I'm curious, how do you kind of look at that decision matrix as you're setting up a community versus even a paid community. Um, and, you know, with all the projects you go, have going on, what are some of the decisions you've made there? Uh, I've been in this space for a really long time. And if you would have told me like in 2005, that in 2023, I wouldn't be able to point to one product to use, I would be like, you're lying. Um, hmm. But the reality is, even in 2023, we're in a situation where there isn't one perfect product. Um, and I think a re one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons is that no two communities are equal and there's no one size fits all product for that. But another reason is, you know, consumer behaviors change so quickly. So for example, Twitter ads, Twitter spaces, all of a sudden, like, you know, Slack or, you know, maybe Slack's a bad example. School needs to add Twitter, you know, some audio component in order to keep up. So it's all these platforms basically just keeping up with one each other. And it's become very difficult to um, pick one. So when people ask me, okay, like I, I want to start a community, but I don't know where to start. The, the, the first thing I tell them is start with where they are. So create a product that like they want the most, you know, with, with, um, robot, we actually asked people, we said, Hey, where do you want the, the, where do you want the community to live? And 47% said discord. So we went with discord, didn't overthink it. Do I think we're going to be on discord forever? Absolutely not. Um, because, you know, discord is only slightly bet is only slightly better than a Twitter or an Instagram in terms of like getting the data. Right. Um, so I think, you know, but I think building a community is so hard, um, that it's really important for you to just like get your feet wet and see, and, and honestly for you, just like get confidence that you like, this is working. So using like, I think WhatsApp is way underrated. WhatsApp community is way underrated. Um, like, Iterate with WhatsApp creator, uh, sorry, WhatsApp uh, communities, get people in there, get a hundred people in there, iterate on the mission, iterate on the memes, iterate on the milestones, iterate on like what you want to be there. 
And then when you're ready, you can think of, do I want to move this over to a more purpose-built platform, like let's say school, which is like more designed for people who have like courses or stuff like that. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. I think we're all guilty sometimes of looking at where someone is on their path of building a community and they're maybe a hundred steps ahead of us and they've got a fully built out, whether Discord community or Mighty Networks community, and there's all this different functionality. And when you're getting started in your niche, you may get guilty of kind of thinking, damn, I got to have all this functionality and all these things when really the game is more about getting started, picking a platform, like you're saying, where people are, and then just getting in that mode of iteration and getting 1% better every day. And very similar to like nature or a tree, like it just gradually grows over time. And um, you have often kind of taught me the idea of just like get comfortable with taking the stairs, you know, don't look for the elevator when building a company or building a product. And the same thing goes when you're building a community, you know, it's just a step-by-step -step sort of game and you can't rush it. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when I see communities that are like growing at crazy rates, like that's unsustainable. Like you don't really want a, you know, you actually don't want a community to grow like exponentially um, from day one, you want like a sustainable growth where every week there's a sustainable amount of people coming in, adding value. Um, and most importantly, not making the, ex the core experience worse for the original people. Um, so, so yeah, I think like it's totally okay to, to limit your growth in the early days. Um, because I think that it'll help you really figure out what is your North star and, and, and what you need to build in order to create like ultimately an incredible experience for your niche. When you think about that tribe test, right across like togetherness, the ritual identity, belonging and engagement. And you think about, you know, scoring those on say one to 10 for how rich, engaging, meaningful, that sense of belonging in a given community. When you, you know, you're exposed to thousands of communities out there. Is there like one that comes to mind as like, maybe it's a hidden gem that really is maximized on that scale and really embodies <laughs> those five principles and, that people may not know about? Yeah. So funny enough, even though I forgot the I in identity, it is probably the most important one of the tribe test. People have fought wars for identity. Um, people uh, do very positive things for the world and very negative things in the world based on what their little voice in their head essentially says about who they are. They, all of us have this voice in our head, which is largely given, uh, which is largely governed by identity that essentially is this invisible hand that makes us make decisions. So if you know how to craft an identity um, and create a community experience around it, um, you just made your job a lot easier. And any, are there any kind of community-based products that, you know, stand out to you as like really nailing that identity piece? I mean, you can just look at religion as, as the OG, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, tribe test, like, you know, religion has, you know, if you want to study community-based products, and I think you had a thread on, on this, uh, recently, I think the best place to start, despite if you're religious or not, is to look at, um, how religion is structured in terms of, you know, long-term incentives, short-term incentives, rituals, um, you know, a leader or multiple leaders. Um, there's so much there that you can actually, um, learn from and, uh, apply it to whatever it is you're doing. And you've been, you know, starting and selling internet communities now for the better part of around 14 years, you know, five by to stumble upon yeah. and, um, you know, islands to we work. And, yeah. you know, there's many behind the scenes that people don't even know about that you've played an integral role in. I'm curious, you know, startups are a marathon, not a sprint. There's ups and downs. There are treacherous times. There's 
horrible times and you know depressing times and all that that people don't even see half the time amongst all that and amongst all the experience you have what are kind of like the three little known lessons that you have um in order to kind of stay successful in the startup game and to kind of um you know keep your your wits about you while you're dealing with you know all the ups and downs never send an angry email <laughs> like it just don't you know uh because and what I mean by that, that doesn't just mean like email. It could be a you know a Slack message, it could mean a text message. It means that if you're in the heat of the moment, if something happens to you and like, and it's going to happen to you, it's going to happen to you maybe even daily around like it pushes you off your seat, like it really grinds your gears. Um, take a break from it. You probably don't need to answer it right away. Um, and even if you do need to answer it right away, honestly, don't. Um, like go for a walk, uh, regain clarity, and most importantly, put yourself in their shoes and be like, why are they doing this? And even if they are being a jerk, then you, you go one step further and you're like, well, why, why are they a jerk? Like, why are they feeling this way? Oh, maybe it's because they had a really tough upbringing or maybe they're, um, you know, having, uh, you know, issues with their wife or husband. Um, maybe they're having health issues. Like human beings are such complex beings that it just, some things come out in weird, weird ways. So number one is definitely, um, don't do something that you're going to regret, um, and act with kindness and love and positivity because the world is pretty, pretty grim as is. We don't need more of that. That's one. Um, number two, I would say is learn to ruthlessly prioritize. Um, if you're in startups, you, you have a million things to do and not enough time. And it's really just about, um, you know, knowing how to prioritize. I use things as a to-do list. I think it's like the most beautiful, I'm not like, I wish they would sponsor me, um, not sponsor or anything, but it's just like a great, beautiful product that um, really just gets me like excited to open a to-do list. And it doesn't need to be things, What? but however you have a to-do list, like make, make it exciting for you. Make, maybe it's like a beautiful notebook or like be excited to open up your to-do list and then ruthlessly prioritize. I think that's been helpful. And then I think third is have a system for um, your creative engine. So hmm. um, what are the podcasts you listen to? What are the, you know, what are you, what are your friend circles like that inspire you? Like, what do you, how do you feel after drinking coffee? Does it make it worse? Does it make, you know, does it make it better? Um, like just being mindful of like how your creativity ebbs and flows and creating systems around that um, has been helpful. Yeah, I think that's a tough thing for people to figure out early on. I know that was something that I really struggled with. You kind of initially when I was getting started in all of this, when I was, you know, 2021, 20, you think that, you know, you're supposed to kind of wake up early, get to work at 8 a.m. and just be creative until 7 p.m. and just put in yeah. the hours and good things happen. And then I feel like, over the years, you know, whether it's hearing from people like you, Toby Lucky at Shopify saying that like, you know, he only expects his employees to really have like four solid hours in a day. Um, and the truth is it's kind of like knowing those hours, knowing the patterns behind, like you're saying that creative engine and, you know, to each person that's going to be unique, but being comfortable with your own flow, your own routine in order to get to those kind of deep work, creative sessions. I I've learned. I was just thinking about this this morning because I've learned that I can only write first thing in the morning for whatever Same. reason. Like, I don't know why, but like this is something like it will take me 25 times, literally 25 times longer to write the same 280 characters in the afternoon versus in the morning. So it's just like, I don't do it. Literally, I'm not going to write if it's, after like 10 a.m. So uh, as an example, last night I was thinking about this concept, like the unbundling of Google. I wrote it, I wrote it down um, right before I went to sleep in my notes folder, my notes file. 
I woke up this morning. Like I let it like simmer in my brain. It simmers somehow. I don't know. I wake up. Um, I sit down at my desk. I brewed a little cup of coffee and I wrote in, you know, 15 minutes max, like a quick thread on like trends that I'm paying attention to, including this unbundling of Google. That would have taken me six hours if I would have done it at 3 p.m. So it's being conscious of that. And just like writing and you can even write a note to yourself. Be like, I know this about myself. I know that you, I can only, I'm the best writer at this time. I'm the best coder at this time. I'm the best whatever at this time, knowing that about yourself and then implementing, like implementing that into your schedule. Yeah. And I've learned a similar thing more recently is yeah. Nights or afternoons are more for kind of curation, get putting ideas down, going for a walk and maybe just writing an outline for something. And then yeah, setting myself up so that those kind of sacred hours in the morning from maybe 7am till 10am, I can really just drive through those outlines and actually get the writing done because same deal. If it's after an afternoon of meetings that I try to go and sit down and get any sort of creative work done, it's going to be just a long, hard session versus uh, being able to do it fresh in the morning where I think you just have the most, at least I have the most motivation. It sounds like similar to you as well. Yeah. Um, I know I was watching, uh, you know, looking at your Twitter this morning and I saw the thread that you're speaking of on this kind of playbook for building a niche business in 2023. You know, I think, you know, you've seen the kind of trend from, you know, social to newsletter in 2022, 2023, I've seen predictions around it being kind of short form video to newsletter to community-based product, curious kind of, you know, for those really looking to, you know, crush their niche become, you know, really a category champion in 2023, how do you kind of see, um, maybe the four pillars to really owning your niche this year? Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about short form video for a second. Um, mm -hmm. so short form is, is probably the easiest way to gain an audience in 2023. Um, a big audience, um, because the platforms are designed to make that content go viral, especially Instagram reels. So I think there's a ton of opportunity to do short form. Um, that being said, I think that short form has gotten harder in the last like five months. Um, you have to be a bit more thoughtful in terms of, um, you know, are you creating a TikTok show? Um, you know, are, you know, what is your, what is your, your unique, you know, view on the world and how can you tell it in an interesting way? So, um, I believe that we'll continue that that's a trend. Of course, short form will continue to go, but I think it'll be increasingly harder to do, um, over the next little bit. Um, so short form, really important. I think you're still going to see um, a huge opportunity in LinkedIn. Like we saw that in 22, 23, I think it's just, I mean, it's, it's massive. Um, it's a sleeper still. And like, it's just every, you know, if you're in business, you just post on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. um, there's no reason why you shouldn't. Well, it's awesome too, to see, like, you know, if you're, for those that are already building up a massive community on Twitter or using any sort of short form text on another platform, whether it's in their newsletter or in Instagram, simply just repurposing some of your best stuff and posting yeah. that once a day on LinkedIn is just a layup of a growth strategy to start kind of cross pollinating your audience to another platform there. And I think the yeah. density on LinkedIn of like legit professionals where it's kind of a social network around, you know, your resume, it seems like there's a more de a higher density of like real people doing legit things than there is on, on Twitter, at least from my experience so far. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's tough because, like, some sometimes, like, <laughs> you know, speaking from the heart here, it's like sometimes I'm getting like LinkedIn requests, and I'm like, are these like NPCs? Like, are these real people? <laughs> um, is LinkedIn just like people like accept my network invitation, like asking bots to like accept it from each other? That's the whole I thing. think that yeah, exactly. I think that. Um, the way I look at all these platforms is 
like 90 plus percent of the audience you attract is going to be probably low quality value for your business. But it's really, you know, again, going back to being mindful to look at like, how, like, what's the type of content that's attracting the 10% or the 5%? And then how can I repurpose that content? Because that's really what matters. Like, you know, it's not, I think the the mistake a lot of people make is they want to have, they want to be Gary Vee. They want 5 million followers. But the problem is, you know, I much rather, well, it's not a problem. I just, I'd much rather 5,000 followers that are super high quality than 5 million followers. Um, so I think you're going to start seeing that more in 2023, which is the the revert back to the niche. Like thinking about, um, you know, what is the type of content that I can create that really, really speaks to the niche that doesn't necessarily need to go viral, but that, you know, gets the right people talking. And the reason I think that trend is going to accelerate is because in a world where, especially on platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn, it's words. In a, wor- in a world where AI is essentially creating 90% of the content, you have you know, ChatGPT like, write, essentially writing threads. Um, that like cookie cutter, fortune teller type um, content is going to get really, really commoditized. So you want to double down on more interesting stories, more interesting niche stuff that really resonates with people. Yeah, no, I'm certainly guilty of that. I mean, sometimes you can get so caught up in the the numbers, the growth, the followers that you lose track of. At the end of the day, similar to products, content is out there to kind of solve people's problems. And um, I've recently uh, been kind of leaning into that and doubling down into that principle, surveying the community at FounderOS and kind of understanding like, what are the core problems that these people have? Like phrasing those as questions and then whether it's using short form video, threads, LinkedIn, carousels, whatever, to solve those specific problems of people that are in the community because inevitably those are the kind of people that we're looking to attract. It's not necessarily people that are into Chrome extensions. So, right. um, and similarly, you know, it's interesting with short form video, uh, you know, I see a lot of people trying to figure out like, what's that one format that I'm going to go and nail with short form video, what's that one concept? And something I kind of learned over the last bit was, you know, the thing that separated, you know, Stephen Colbert from James Corden, who James Corden, as many know, has like blown up on YouTube um, over the years is this idea that, you know, Stephen Colbert had the kind of one content type sitting at his desk, interviewing people, whereas James Corden created basically a variety show and had eight Mm -hmm. to 10 different concepts, was experimenting with a ton of different things and kind of kept that, uh, you know, that mystery, that variety, that, you know, just changing it up a lot to just experiment with different formats versus Colbert having the one format. Um, so I think for those people that are looking to get into short form and are not sure which, you know, idea to run with, oftentimes I think it makes sense to try a bunch of different concepts and think about short form as more variety show than trying to focus on just one concept. Um, yeah. Yeah, I saw there's a guy by the name of John Yushai. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce him, but he's like, he used to work at YouTube and now he has like a YouTube channel. Yeah, that's where it's from. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so he, yeah, I saw that video. So he, it's really an interesting, it's, everyone should watch it. It's really interesting. Yeah, Um, shout out to John. That was like, that is, no, thanks for that. I watched too much stuff. I'm trying to remember where all this stuff comes from. And he, like, I think it, it is interesting. I think there, like that got me thinking too, which is like, why does a variety show work? Well, a variety show works in the same way that like a product studio like ours works, which is like you're throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and you can kind of like double down on the thing that works. So um, it also attracts different niches, different, you know, different audiences. So um, I agree with you, Matt. I think if you're trying to create short form, Think about how you can create variety. And then that puts you in the position of actually, you know, it's a year, it's a year from now. Now I could decide, do I want to double down on this show, this show, this show, or do I want to keep it like mixed? And it puts you in a really good position. Yeah. I'm curious, like to kind of, you know, there's the ideation phase, owning your niche phase, inevitably what a lot of people are looking to do eventually with their company um, is eventually set it up for an exit. You've had multiple successful exits. 
you've even had uh, offers you've turned down, as you recently wrote about in your newsletter around the offer you got from Twitter, uh, I believe back in 2021, uh, to purchase Late Checkout. I'm curious, how do you think about setting your company up for a sale? And when you're kind of navigating that sale process, what are some of like the key lessons that you've learned? Yeah, I think, and I think I might've told you this at one point, I'm pretty sure I have. So basically like, I think I see it as like the law of 21, there's seven companies that probably would buy your company. And there's three people at those companies who could actually sponsor your deal. Meaning they could actually like say, Hey, we should buy this company and make it happen. Usually that's like the CEO, the head of product, um, or it might be the product manager in charge of that area. So your job as the maker or the founder is to get to know these 21 people as well as you can from day one, you know, when, you know, with islands, which was my last company, we had a deal on the table from in December, 2018, um, from a large company, we all thought it was going, you know, going through. And then all of a sudden, like Christmas Eve, like they decide the board decides we don't want to do this for whatever reason. And we're out of cash. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm like funding it myself. And, you know, that's a really bad place to be in. Luckily, I had learned that law of 21 um, from, I think, Dan Martell, um, who's another Canadian entrepreneur many years ago. And I had built these really good relationships with a lot of uh, target acquirers. So what I did was, you know, January 3rd or whatever, get back to work. Everyone's getting back to work. I sent an email, like a really quick email to those, um, you know, it wasn't seven companies now, it was six companies. Um, but essentially to those six times three, 18 people. And it was like short and sweet. It was like, Hey, uh, I've decided I'm selling islands. Here's the metrics. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to close this in 60 days. Uh, do you want to chat? It was literally like a four line email. And from that, like we had offers on the table and it was, and it, and why did we have offers so quickly? It's because I had known these people for like multiple years at this point. So it wasn't like some random, random dude. And it was during a period where like, if you look at the stock market in 2018, like it was a really rough year. I think the S and P closed down like, 19% or something like that. So you can even do this during recession or a hard time. Yeah. No, I love that. Love 21. Yep. A lot of times people think, you know, it's a much bigger number of people they got to, you know, go and talk to and that they maybe need a banker, but oftentimes it's a lot simpler than you think. And inevitably these things get sold based on the relationships that you have. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So last, last question here. So there's the, you've talked a lot about the shift from you know, content creators shifting now to business creators, people looking to move beyond, you know, an ads based model funding their entire operation to being able to look at, you know, new sorts of business models and starting their own businesses, whether it's, you know, Logan Paul starting an e-commerce brand, you know, prime or Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast burger. Um, you know, how do creators think about moving to business creators from your standpoint and think about, you know, the different business models like software, e-commerce, digital products, paid communities, you know, what's your advice on kind of navigating that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, like one of the reasons I wrote that is because I think that creators are on this treadmill and they want to get off. Yep. So, you know, I think a lot of them are going to start, you know, instead of, instead of getting uh, brand deals, they're going to want equity in stuff. And especially now that there's so many examples, like to your point around like people, people who have been successful, they're going to be like, I want that too. So um, the first thing, you know, if you're a creator and you, and you want to like brainstorm a product idea, first thing is like, what do you think, like intuitively, what do you think are the five products that these people would buy? Then ask your audience or hopefully a community. If you have a community of like closed people, Ask them, what are the, what are the five products that you'd buy? A lot of those ideas would be horrible, but synthesize it. So you have two lists, you have, you know, your intuition, and then you have what your community says. 
from that, you prioritize it and you prioritize, you know, what do you, okay, like, is this a, a good business idea? Just because people say that they want this product doesn't mean it's a good business idea. And just because you have an idea for something doesn't mean it's a good business idea. So you prioritize based on, is this a good business idea and why? And why now? And then uh, once you have that, um, you know, go back to your community, be like, hey, this is my idea. Get some feedback, iterate on that. And then I'd say prioritize based on digital over physical. Um, and like, why? Because it's just way easier to, you know, create a digital app or digital experience than it is to go and create um, the next Mr. Beast Burger or Feastables or uh, CPG, you know, prime type company with logistics and manufacturing, suppliers, FDA approval, you name it. It's just not that simple. So um, I, I would recommend that, you know, creators start with digital at least, and they, they can move to CPG and stuff like that, but it's just so, so much easier to start digital. Once you've built the confidence of like, wow, I did a thing, I built this thing, um, you know, then you can expand to uh, physical. And I want to say one more thing, which is it's really difficult for a creator to then, like basically be a, you know, a creator and then be a CEO. So I think what's going to happen is, you know, or I think it's worth considering, um, creators like partner with someone to go and build those. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a uh, two different mindsets. Yeah. And inevitably, I think a lot of creators are, have that kind of competitive advantage and, you know, being able to double down and, you know, producing amazing content, thinking of unbelievable ideas. And if you can just kind of focus in that lane and drive that and then find someone to manage the, the business operation side of things, um, your growth and likely your happiness is likely to increase yeah. that level of focus. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I uh, want to thank you, Greg, for making the time here. want to also thank you big time for all your help scaling herb over the years. And even recently, uh, I'm sure no one knows, but now they might, you're the guy that named founder OS, uh, because we were about yeah. to name it founder operating systems and then Greg swooped in. Um, so yeah, I want to thank you for all your help on the uh, community side over the, the years. And for those, um, that are looking to check out more from Greg, be sure to go and hit uh, his Twitter link in the description, check out the newsletter for late checkout there as well. The best newsletter in the world on community-based products. And uh, for anyone looking for proven systems to scale their brand and audience, go check out the Foundress newsletter in the description below. Thanks so much, Greg.